Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is entitled Resentment and How It's Affecting Your Marriage, originally produced and published by Sarah Payne of the Doctor's Wife Podcast. We're excited to share this episode with you, but before we do, we wanted to mention some of our upcoming events taking place in Hillsboro, Oregon, and Calgary, Canada in the coming months. To learn more and purchase tickets, click on the links found in our show notes below. Welcome, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am here today with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. She is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and a licensed therapist, and she specializes in teaching and coaching Latter-day Saints to have better intimate emotional and sexual relationships. And she received her undergraduate from BYU, and then she went on to Boston College to get her master's and PhD, where she did her dissertation on LDS women and sexual desire. She now resides in Chicago with her, her husband and children. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. This is such an important subject and it comes up so often that I am just thrilled to have you as an expert in this field um, to talk to talking to my listeners. And for any of them who haven't heard of you, this is going to be an especially exciting treat because they are going to love you. Thank you. But um, as you know, I this podcast is for women who are married to doctors and who are also members of the church, and they've often spent a decade or more supporting their husband through his schooling and training, and it's not uncommon for them to have a lot of resentment for his job and sometimes for him as well. Hmm. Would you speak to resentment and how it affects our sexual relationship with our spouse? Sure. Well, I would say basically just as a starting point that resentment is a libido killer. Like it's, it's really undermines desire. And that's not, that's in part because of good judgment often. It, it, resentment isn't always about good judgment, but sometimes it is. And sometimes the things that wives of doctors may be resenting is the way that they feel that they are the support staff for their husband's life rather than a partner or that they have sacrificed a lot in the hope that it would create or bring something that felt more shared and more equal. But in fact, it seems to have not done that, but they feel just more invisible. And so there's oftentimes feelings and realities that are present in the relationship that make sexual desire low, but it doesn't necessarily mean something is defective in the woman, right? It is a Mm -hmm. signal. I think of it as often the canary in the coal mine, that it's a signal that this relationship is not operating in the way that I really want. And, And so sometimes the low desire is a signal that there's something that needs to be addressed or resentment's a signal that something needs to be addressed. Sometimes resentment, as I said, is about good judgment, but sometimes it's also an indulgent position in that we make choices, but then continue to hold people responsible for our choices. And so it can also be a kind of victim position without taking more responsibility for what you want, standing up 
for something, asking for things to be different. So it can also be a way of justifying your escape from the responsibility of dealing with your relationship more effectively. Yes. And I think I, I love how you put that because it's in the short term, it's almost easier to just resent than to have Definitely. a challenging conversation. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, if you, I mean, I'm going to speak stereotypically for just a moment because I realize that not all your listeners fit into this pattern, but you know, a lot of times when you sign on to the idea that you're going to be partnered to someone who's a doctor, there's, there's a bit of a promise that you can be in their shadow in a sense and have a good life. And I realize this is not how everybody thought about it or went into that, Mm -hmm. but you know, that they're, they're going to be doing this high status, high income yielding career, and you will get to live in the, oh, what's the word? (laughs) Like the, the benefits of that reality. And so you kind of can willingly go in and say, I'll sacrifice a lot because it gives me a good life and I can handle that that's how we're setting this up. Um, And I think that what can easily happen is that it reinforces a pattern of dependency and sort of background that for some people is very familiar way of relating to themselves and others, Mm -hmm. but that starts to be really painful with time. And so to break that pattern, to start to not just resent, but to constructively come into that conversation and say, this is not working for me any longer, or this is not what I want, or this is too imbalanced, can be really, can really stretch our sense of ourselves and can really be uncomfortable. And so a lot of us prefer the covert superiority of feeling like we're being victimized by our spouse while still getting the benefits of that system, mm-hmm. but not really growing into something that's stronger and that you can actually be happier in. And then I think the other piece of it is sometimes when, and again, I'm speaking very stereotypically, right, I realize. That's okay. Well, we but, forgive all stereotypes okay, on this podcast. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, great. But a lot of doctors are quite nar- narcissistic. I mean, this is my experience in working with clients who are couples where one is a doctor. Okay. There is a lot of reinforcement. Often they're very good academically, you know, often, you know, the the reason they have been successful is they're quite capable and they get a lot of reinforcement of that capacity. And so some people may, some people who are the doctors may feel like they want a more equal relationship than they in fact do. Mm -hmm. So they may not take kindly to the challenge that this isn't as shared as I want it to be. So they, it's not only that it can be easier to resent, it's that sometimes if the woman does speak up, she might not be met with somebody who's like, hey, I think you might have a point. She might be met with a lot of pressure to go back into her blind resentment. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so, so I hear um, my listeners hearing you and they, and they see themselves in who you've been describing, you know, like, and they, they're, they're ready to like take the small step to stop being the victim and the, and, mm-hmm. you know, being silent, feeling silently superior, but they're just like, how, what, how, what, what, mm-hmm. how do I begin? Well, you know, so I have an online course for LDS couples called strengthening your relationship. And I help people with exactly this, um, which is to look at, okay, this is the pattern that we engage in as a couple. And I do this sort of silent victim cost, what I call costly accommodation. And it drives my resentment. 
And so if I'm going to be in a more solid position, I have to step into a more exposed position. That's the thing. And I have to stabilize myself more than I'm accustomed to doing. Because if I step out and say, I'm not okay with our current system, and I'm not happy in the status quo, I'm going to get a lot of pushback. I mean, now some of you may not, but most of you are going to get a lot of pushback because people don't like growing. It hurts. It's uncomfortable. (laughs) You know, and your spouse is like, this is working for me. Like, why can't you just be happier, right? Why can't you just appreciate all the good things that come from living with me and shut up about it, basically, in more or less? And and oftentimes... um, and so what the what the position requires, and I guess what I'm trying to say is that you're not going to do it well at first, but that's what growth requires. It means I'm willing to start stabilizing myself enough to step out into the discomfort and say what I really think and tolerate that my husband is not going to agree, is going to try, I mean, again, I'm stereotyping, right, <laughs> but right. probably going to twist reality a bit to justify himself is going to exploit the part of me that feels insecure and uncertain and pressure me to kind of go back into my uncertainty. And we're going to call that a conversation. (laughs) And what I would say if this person were my client, if the woman were my client is sounds like a typical first, second, or even 10th go at this. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get stronger if you don't just fold back into resentment, but you say, I think I see what my spouse is doing and I think I see how I get stuck. And the, the goal is not <clears throat> so much to change your spouse, although your spouse may change in this process. The goal is to get more solid within yourself and not be so dependent on his validation or approval or acknowledgement of your experience and your view and to be more able to own and claim the legitimacy of it, whether or not he wants to or will. Yes, which means getting your own back, right? That's and exactly. Not, not looking to him to validate you, which is that's right. challenging when it's been your pattern for your whole married life and maybe even before then. Precisely, precisely. That's often, you know, when somebody who's like, oh, my spouse is going to be a doctor. And of course, this isn't the same. It often will draw the person who, who knows how to do background well, or who wants the idea that if I support you well, you will love me and give me my value. And instead, 20 years, and I just feel kind of taken for granted, and I don't feel valued. And I'm tired of it being the husband show. I want I want my own role, but mm-hmm. now I've got to work muscles that have been latent for my whole life or have become more latent, you know, more, more weak in this partnership. And so <clears throat> I guess I'm here to say, I wish I could tell people 10 tips for a collaborative marriage <laughs> and that it's all works out if you just do, which is not me saying you can't grow it, but it is often really uncomfortable because you're working muscles you haven't worked before and they're weak. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they're weak and it hurts, like just with exercise, doesn't mean something's going wrong. It means you're engaging in a very, very valuable process that's going to help you get clearer headed, help you get stronger. You know, we talk a lot in church about the idea that faith leads to knowledge. And I think this is absolutely true in this example and in so much of relationship growth is that you're reaching towards something you don't 
yet know how to do this. You feel destabilized by it. You're reaching towards something better when you're when you're doing this well. You're not you're not doing it. Now some people do it. They want to make their spouse feel like garbage and they want to feel morally superior. And so they can go into a rant and say I'm trying to be collaborative, but really what they're doing is just trying to feel superior to their spouse for the 15 minutes of the of the rant and then they go back to the old position. Okay, so that's not what I'm talking about, but when you're saying look this is not working for me. I am not happy. I'm too background. We don't have a shared marriage. You know, I talk a lot to people about what, what I think the goal is of an intimate marriage is it's a marriage that's made room for two people to thrive. And so that would be the woman who's saying, we've made room for one of us to thrive, which is not to say I haven't thrived in some areas, in some ways, but it's too imbalanced and it's not working for me. That's somebody who's really trying to reach for better. That's faith. Mm-hmm. There's something out there that I don't yet know. I don't even entirely know what my role is in creating it, but I'm reaching towards it and trying to stabilize my fear as I reach towards this good thing that I can feel is out there. That's exactly what faith is. I don't fully understand it, but I can feel it. It feels better and expansive, and I'm reaching towards it and stabilizing my fear in the face of it. So that, mm-hmm. that's why faith is a virtue, because it takes courage. Right. As you keep reaching towards the thing that you can feel is there and stabilizing your anxiety, the more you grow into knowledge, the more you can start seeing things. You start seeing, wow, my spouse acts strong, but maybe he's being a bully. Or mm-hmm. he's better at twisting reality than I've been willing to or able to see. And as I keep pushing him on this, I can see more how... <clears throat> where my blind spot is and where he pressures me and you start getting wiser mm-hmm. even if not happier at first <laughs> okay yeah you know like the but, truth sets you free but it makes you miserable first you know <laughs> and so, and so, it's gonna get you, worse before it gets better <laughs> yes exactly right and just to tolerate that's how growth goes that's why we need our belief in God and goodness because it helps us stabilize ourselves in the in the in the storm that ensues. Yes, and just knowing that that is going to be likely what happens is like yes. oh, then when you're in it, you're like oh, nothing has really gone wrong here. Exactly, exactly what they it said. It helps you settle yourself rather than oh my gosh, I'm destroying something. Uh-huh. Well, you are destroying something, but you're destroying something that needs to be destroyed <laughs> so right. that something better can grow but it's not destructive in the ultimate sense. Yes. I love that. I love what you said about faith too. It reminds me of the hymn, lead kindly light, like just one yeah. step, just take That's one right. step. That's right. That's exactly. And right. you mentioned your courses, which of course we'll talk about again, but they're excellent. There are three online courses, correct? There's actually four. So oh, there's, four. there's two relationship ones, strengthening your relationship and then enhancing sexual intimacy. And I recommend that you do the relationship one and then this sexual intimacy Mm because it's a foundational course that helps you with the understanding what's happening in your sexual relationship. But then I have one called The Art of Desire that's about, that's really a a lot about women and self-development and and honoring their own development in their lives because so many of us have learned exactly how to be background, how to be the support staff, how to sort of reference what everybody else wants from us as a way to be the ideal woman. But then we find it very difficult to feel 
like we're thriving and alive and know even how to create a good sexual relationship. So that's the, the women's course, Art of Desire. And then there's a course on how to talk to your LDS kids about sex. And it's, yes, which is it's about excellent. developing yes, sexual integrity in your children. Yes. Yeah. Great. So I, I heard you say once um, or read that you said this, I want women to challenge the idea that sacrificing their development is a virtue because in my experience, it only creates resentment and non-intimate marriages. I know this is how so many of my listeners feel, and you've spoken a little bit to this. If they identify this and want to change, what would you say to them? Well, um, yes. Okay. This is probably the thing I have the most passion about and I care so much about because I think we are offered this kind of false tradition that the virtuous woman basically self-denies chronically. And that's what establishes her goodness. And so when you say self-denies, can you give me like an example? Is that just yeah. like, what would, what exactly sure. do you mean by that? Well, it's like what everybody else wants is more important than what I want. And because I'm in a room and I can feel that somebody wants something from me, it becomes so pressuring on me that I find myself yielding to it or doing it, not necessarily because it's the most right thing to do, but because it's hard for me to feel legitimate if I'm not accommodating what other people want from me. So that's more of a fear-driven and anxiety-driven decision-making process rather than an integrity-driven decision-making process. And this is very much what the Art of Desire course is about, is Mm -hmm. how do we distinguish between fear-based reactive decisions to accommodate versus integrity-based decisions of sacrifice because sacrifice is fundamental to good relationships and to parenting, for example. But oftentimes we have a sort of corrupt version that's operating in us that doesn't create strength in our partnerships and in ourselves and in our children. Instead, it creates dependency and resentment. You know, mm-hmm. So an example might be that your child um, I'm trying to give an example quickly, like want something from you that it's hard for you to say no to because you don't want your child unhappy with you. Let's say your adolescent to be unhappy with you. So you are dysregulated by the pressure that they're putting on you. But ultimately, it is better for them for you to hold the boundary and say no. But because it's so hard for you to handle yourself when they're upset with you, Mm-hmm. Or it's hard for you to see them struggle in the boundary or hard for you to be uncertain about whether or not they're going to succeed at something in the face of that boundary that you step in to do what they want as a way to manage your sense that you're a kind person and manage their anxiety. You've now done the thing that makes everybody feel better up front, but mm-hmm. is not good for your child is not good for you because it's fear-based and anxiety-based, not integrity-based. Where the integrity-based decision might be you hold the boundary and you tolerate that they are unhappy with you. Mm-hmm. Or you might do that in your mar- marriage. If, if the marriage is going to grow, you have to tolerate, you have to tolerate invalidation. If your children are going to grow, you have to tolerate invalidation. If you're going to grow, you have to tolerate invalidation because going back to your initial question, if you want to develop yourself and fulfill the measure of your creation and become who you, to develop your gifts in ways that are congruent with your sense of yourself and what is good. 
then you have to be willing to step into areas that are unique to you, that are about what matter to you, ways that you can give in the world that would require sacrifices on some level from your husband and children for you to develop. Mm -hmm. And that's often counterintuitive to how we've been told to be a woman. And yet in my experience, when people just go into doing what everybody else wants, they are resentful of their role as a parent. They're resentful as their role as a wife. They are pushing off depression all the time and they're not thriving. And then often paradoxically, their kids, whether as children or as adults, are trying to caretake the self of the mother who's never really managed her sense of who she is. And, you know, we oftentimes think in terms of, oh, either she make, uh, she takes care of herself or she takes care of her children, one or the other. Who's going to win? I mean, we, we think this way very much. Are you selfish or selfless? Mm-hmm. And in my Art of Desire course, I, I really break that whole system down because it's the wrong model. You can't win in it. It's either you win or I win. And it's the wrong idea. It's how do we thrive? And it's it's how do where do I need to sacrifice for others to thrive, but also where does my family sacrifice that I thrive? Because when people sacrifice for the mutual thriving and the mutual, you know, and, and for people to develop their gifts in a way that's in balance and reasonable, everybody's stronger for it. That's how you create Zion. And I love that distinction because you, that you said sacrificing for the thriving of everyone instead yes. of sacrificing in the moment because you don't want to see your child uncomfortable or because you want to try to control their experience. Exactly. And exactly. And, and, and I'm glad you bring up control because I think a lot of us in the name of self-sacrifice are often trying to control reality much more than we can see. Like if I do this, I can then control how you feel about me and I need you to feel good about me or I need you to feel that I'm necessary or, you know, so a lot of times we're trying to control outcomes or control, keep people needing us or revolving around us through our sacrifice, quote unquote, but it's a corrupt version of it. And it's not, mm-hmm. it's got more neediness and weakness driving it than we sometimes can see. Yeah. And it sounds like a lose-lose situation because then yes, your child is. is often compelled to try to manage your emotions. That's exactly right. Oh, exactly. so good. So it's a very okay. entangled system. And it's very human. It's very easy to do this. It's very easy to teach it as goodness because it's it's sort of natural man. That's how I see it. It's like our it's our more primitive way of being in relationship. And growing out of it into deeper integrity is the pathway towards deeper godliness. By godliness, I mean the ability to really create and do good in the world in our unique ways and in our specific capacities. Um, But we have to grow out of that dependency for others to prop up our sense of self. Mm -hmm. And instead do that for ourselves. That's right. Get better at doing it. And it's when we are in alignment internally, when we're in integrity, when we are in alignment with our deepest sense of what is good and right, that we are the least dependent on other people telling us we're okay because we're okay with God in a sense. And my only hesitation around that is oftentimes we are deferring to a God, an idea of God that others have given us and pressure us with rather than us really reaching towards 
what is it for me to do good? Our personal revelation, our mm-hmm. own experience of the divine. What does it mean for me? Right. I had one of the people I interviewed for my dissertation research was um, studying to be a doctor, a medical doctor. And it was counter to everything she'd grown up believing she should be. But at every point when she and her husband would pray and fast about every decision point, they kept getting the shared understanding that she should keep going. And so she was in reality, you know, a shared breadwinner and she was, you know, counter, she was doing things differently than what she would necessarily be told or what other people would validate. But because she was clear in her heart that this was right for her and that God was um, in line with this decision-making, she could handle the invalidation of other people because she wasn't so driven by them needing to be okay with it. Yeah, because she felt like she was doing what God wanted her to do. Yeah. Which I feel like that is where President Nelson is taking us so much, you know, that he wants, God wants to speak with you individually. That's right. And away from this sort of external referencing so much to how do you create goodness in your specific situation? How do these young men or young women, what are things that they can do that speak to the needs of that group or the talents and gifts of that group? And it's less external referencing and more internal referencing. Excellent. So, so if one of my listeners is sitting here thinking, oh my goodness, I've been doing this my whole married life Mm -hmm. and I'm giving my kids responsibility for my emotions and I'm giving my husband responsibility for my emotions. I want to take it back. What are a couple of questions that she maybe could ask herself when she's to, to know if she's like helping or if, if she's asking her family to make sacrifices so that everybody thrives or if she's falling back into that pattern. Does that question make sense? Yes. One question I might ask it to, I have maybe two ideas. One is, are my children better off for the choice that I'm making? Ultimately, Mm -hmm. am I better off for it? Is my spouse better off for it? If not, why am I doing it? What's driving me doing it? And be compassionate with yourself because this is very human. This doesn't make you evil and broken. It makes you human. Okay? Mm-hmm. We, are, we do this very easily. And, and this is the natural man pull, which is not to say that it's Satan so much as it's kind of what we, it's our, it's our underdeveloped selves. And so we're trying to grow into something stronger. And so waking up is an act of courage. That's how you can repent is to see more clearly. Mm-hmm. So if they're not better off, ultimately, more stronger, more able to self-sustain, then why am I doing it? What's driving the decision-making? Oh, my fear of my child's failure. And then how is that going to reflect on me? Or I'm afraid that they won't ever pick up their part. But if I keep operating like they can't or they won't, then maybe they never will. And so what do I think I need to do differently that would actually help my child thrive? Or in the marriage, you know, if this is not making my spouse stronger and the marriage stronger, then why am I doing it? And what do I need to do to make the marriage stronger? Or, you know, make my spouse not take, you know, sometimes we prop up bullies and we prop up people that take advantage. And there's no virtue in that, mm-hmm. even though we often want to tell ourselves there is. So good. 
Can you speak to exhaustion for a minute? I find that that's one of the biggest reasons that my listeners aren't interested in sex at the end of the day. They're just tired from taking care of the kids, often for, you know, extremely long hours or extended periods of time where their husbands are working and they would just rather sleep, but they want to want to have sex. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm going to take that at like two or three different levels. So on the one hand, absolutely. Okay, like, you know, when you're really tired, it's kind of, it's one of the first things to go in the sense that if you're sick and exhausted, it can be harder to generate desire because you feel like Eros energy, the energy of sexuality is the, uh, it's the creative, alive aspect of living. And Thanatos energy is like, Thanatos energy is like turning inward and, turn, you know, so if you are depleted, overwhelmed, exhausted, it's it's really hard to find the energy source of desire and eroticism. And by eroticism, I mean the things that make sex appealing. Mm -hmm. And so, so on the one hand, I would say to that, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. On the other hand, what I would say is even couples who are very busy and don't get enough sleep, if they get, they have a meaningful rejuvenating sexual relationship they won't let tiredness keep them from keeping that alive because it is a source of rejuvenation when sex is good, especially for women. It's a way of being given to, not giving. Mm -hmm. Sex is really good for women. And I don't mean that put it all in the frame of taking care of another person, but when, when, when women are having really, good, having really good sex, they feel loved through it. They feel sustained through it. So they might say, it's been an exhausting day. That's why I definitely want to have sex (laughs) because I want to feel alive or I want to feel cared for. I want to feel sustained. So I think that if you don't have that happening in your relationship and this becomes a way of like, okay, he wants me to be here and I feel like Mm -hmm. I've been giving to everybody all day and I can't do this one more time. That's the meaning frame is off the meaning frame is in a frame that this is one more job to do before I go to sleep. And no, of course you don't want to do that. Okay. And there's no way to will the desire, in my opinion, of doing one more job after you've Mm -hmm. been jobs all day long. It's the wrong meaning frame. So when we are, and there's sort of so much to say that I can't give it to you all, but what I mean is like when you're in the frame of duty, whether that's how you parent, whether that's how you're in relationship to the people around you that you're responding to their desires, that's how you're in relationship to your husband. Desire can't happen there. Like sex is either work or play, but it can't be both. Oh, I heard you say that on a recent podcast and I thought that is brilliant. Yeah, and that's quoting Esther Perel, who I heard her say that some one time, but, but so she's, you know, this, this idea that if you're in the duty frame, you can't be in this authentic self-expressive frame. Mm -hmm. And so what I want, what I'm trying to help women do is learn how to step into themselves more deeply. Then they have even the, they're even in the right position to be able to stand up and start creating something more mutual and more shared. For some women I've worked with where they're with a, a spouse that's taking up too much of the oxygen in the marriage, they're, they may even really like sex, but it's, they have no desire 
And it's not until they've worked the meaning of this, the relationship that there is now this platform in which so, so that it's balanced that they start respecting their spouse more. They start respecting themselves more. And then there's the meaning frame in place where both they want to show up because they want to be with their spouse. So they like him better. They like themselves better. But also the meaning frame in which the sexual relationship starts to become about them as much as it is about their spouse that it's a playground where they get to play also, not just, okay, I need to you know, take care of you tonight. That's, One more thing I, on my to-do list or whatever. Yeah, and that will never, ever feel enlivening or desirable. That's just in the duty frame. And again, it doesn't make either of you stronger. It creates hurt on both sides because he doesn't feel desired. He feels accommodated. Mm-hmm. He doesn't feel intimacy. He feels he's getting sex, but he's still alone. Now he's mm-hmm. creating that. I mean, he's a part of it. You see what I mean? And yes. he may not be able to see that he's a part of that, that he's part of the low desire in his wife that he feels victimized by, but that he's taking too much, that he doesn't take her seriously. She may not take herself seriously either, but that's part of the system that's operating and you can't create intimacy and thriving and aliveness in that kind of dependent system. So it really goes back to resentment. Well, I mean, that that has to be, you have to work on that before. You have to work on what the resentment is showing you about yourself and your partnership, right? So it's not like stop resenting so much as what am I resentful of? Mm -hmm. And what is it that I'm not taking? What am I not dealing with? And what do I need to either take responsibility for in myself that I'm putting at my partner's feet? Or what do I need to stand up for and and address directly that I'm not giving so much of my power away to my spouse and then resenting him for it. Yes. So good. I love that. Can we talk about talking to our kids about sex? Sure. This is something that, that, that so many parents think about and, and what cultural barriers do you see most often with members of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who are teaching, like in teaching our children about sex and how can we overcome them so that we can teach chastity without shame? Well, I think that the biggest barrier is that we have the false tradition that sex and pleasure is Satan's pathway. And so we, we give the, the lip service to the idea that the body is good but not very many of us have an actual testimony of that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That is to say, like a lot of Christian traditions see the body as a threat to goodness. It's like carnal in some way. Exactly. And so it's like the the body keeps you from godliness. That's why you should swear all of it off if you want to know God. Well, our theology doesn't say that. Our theology says you must have a body to know God, to become like God, which is a profound and beautiful theology. But we still, in my view, have a lot of the false traditions operating in our interpretation of that idea that allows us to say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's good, but stay away. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of say, oh, yeah, 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 it's good. You're supposed to get a body, but, but now say, this is Satan's playground and watch out. And mm-hmm. so when we, when we are terrified of our sexuality, when we teach the idea that sex is stronger than you are, which we unwittingly teach all the time, We tie our children's hands. We keep them from being able to integrate this aspect of themselves because they're afraid of it. 
mm-hmm. and they feel like it's going to ruin them or hurt somebody else. It's very, very hard to integrate something that you are being told is good, but really, really isn't good. And that pleasure is, okay, well, you should have it maybe in your marital bed in a very constrained way, but ultimately good people don't have that much pleasure. You know, we have these ideas and I think they're the wrong ideas because it's, it's moderation in all things. And we teach this idea that sort of the most righteous people have shut it all down, you know, or they're having duty sex or they're having very, very constrained sex, but they aren't able to really understand the godliness and the divinity of really profoundly embodied sexuality. I mean, I think this is when you start to understand something of heaven and godliness through the body is through deeply intimate sexuality. Like where you, and when we have no vision of that ourselves, we're just terrified of it, or we had some family member who's got a porn problem or what, then we're just like, okay, just, you know, okay, yes, 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 it's good and save it till marriage. But really the real message you're giving your kids is you're afraid of it and you're afraid it's stronger than they are rather than know you, this sexuality that you've been given is a wonderful gift. It's an amazing gift. It's also a powerful gift. And so being wise about how you're in relationship to this gift matters because it's a powerful way of relating to yourself and others. And so that's why we're asked to save it for the most intimate relationship that we have because it's such a powerful form of communication, which doesn't mean that it's bad. It means it's a beautiful thing, but being, being thoughtful and careful with that gift to protect it for and to develop it for this special place is really, really important. But our kids map whether or not we've worked that out. You know? Can you talk about how I've heard you talk about this before and it's so good. Like the example of, you know, a commercial on TV that you're watching with yes. your family or something. Right. So you are you are communicating your mind whether or not you want to be. I mean that's the tricky thing about being a parent, you know. <laughs> know more than you do about your mind. And it's frustrating when they say things and you're like, oh my gosh, they're right. Okay. <laughs> my son was making fun of me once where he could tell I was bragging, but I was trying to look like I wasn't bragging. And so, you know, he's a teenager. So he's like, so he starts imitating me and I'm like, oh my gosh, embarrassed. <laughs> and so anyway, so that's the gift of teenagers. They'll help you see yourself. But anyway, <laughs> So, um, but my point is that like, if you're, you can say, for example, my mother who grew up in a generation where there was no talk of sexuality when I was in sixth or seventh grade felt like she needed to talk to me about it, but she was really anxious. So we're driving to my friend's house. She's driving me there and she's looking straight forward and she's trying to talk to me. And she's so anxious that I don't fully understand what she's trying to tell me. Mm -hmm. And then she's saying, do you have any questions? But the big message I had was my mom was super anxious. I was clearly anxious because I didn't want to have this conversation with her and I didn't know how to respond to it. So she said, do you have any questions? And my answer was no, none, even though I don't even understand what you just said, but I'm going to relieve you and me of the anxiety of this conversation. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so the reality is like, I got the meta message more than the message. Right. It was, she was like, her actions were speaking so loudly. You couldn't hear what she was saying. Which is not, how to say it? Like, I respect that she was trying. Right. And in some sense, that meant something because she wasn't just ignoring the topic altogether. She was saying to me, this, 
this matters, okay? And I, I'm afraid of it myself, but I got both messages. And so I'm not saying that to say, okay, well, you're going to fail no matter what. <laughs> I mean, in, the, in my talk, how do you talk to your kids about sex course? That's a big piece of this is working out your own view of sexuality and can you offer something better? And you can even say to your kids, I have my own, you know, I've had some people who've taken that course or who have learned through other courses that I've taken about a different way of thinking about their sexuality. And they've gone to their adolescent and adult children and said, hey, I feel like I gave you a lot of wrong messages and I'm sorry about it. This is what I think I learned and I'm looking at it differently and I offer this to you for you to consider in your own life. But I think I was wrong in this. I think that's very helpful to kids at whatever age to just say, you know, I also was offered an idea and I'm working my way through it, but I believe in this higher idea. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, there's truth and, and, and divinity is in moderation. I, I know we don't necessarily talk about that as much as we ought to, but I, I see it whenever we're in, if you think about the relationship to food, you can be in an immoderate position with food or with sweets, for example. So if you are learn that sweets will make you fat and therefore they are bad and must be avoided, you have no ability to integrate the pleasures of food, of sweets, in a way that blesses your life because you'll go into an immoderate position. And we do this with sex. So you'll either go into the anorexic, I never will have those pleasures, mm -hmm. completely repressed, which maybe looks like the person who's in control because she's thin, but she's in a broken relationship to herself and her and to food or the indulgent position, which is like the porn and excessive, you know, which is also immoderate and broken because it's also a broken relationship to oneself and one's sexuality, because even though you're enjoying, no, you're not even enjoying, even though you're taking in sweets, okay, you're mm -hmm. not enjoying them and they're not blessing your life. And they're not making you stronger. And so it's also a ungodly position. And the, the moderate position is how do I relate to the pleasures of the body through food or sexuality in a way that makes me stronger, blesses my life, gives me joy, but doesn't, isn't destructive to me or others. And so it's like there's this balance of how do I relate to, go, to these pleasures in a way that makes me stronger. There's a strength in being able to receive pleasure, to receive the goodness in food, to receive the pleasure in food or sexuality. It's, it's a mark of strength to be able to let it bless your life without going in the excess of grabbing and taking or right, the overindulgence. That. Yeah, and that's that's a weak position. It's it's not even like oh a little bit, but you're gonna go too far. It's not even that. It's a totally different mindset to be in a moderate relationship to food than in either the repressive or the indulgent position to food or sex. It's a mm -hmm. totally different mind. It's not the middle of those two positions. It's a different developmental place. It's oh, I love that, and it's that's where the strength is. Yes, it's about I believe in a God who wants me to have joy, and I believe that I'm worthy of it. And how can I be in relationship to this blessing of food or sex in a way that makes me joyful, stronger? Mm -hmm. So it's like taking in the goodness that's there without using it in a corrupt version to get away from yourself and life. It's a way of being more deeply in yourself and your experience and life. It's a way of knowing God more deeply when you can take in the goodness and receive it without going into an excessive position, which breaks you from connection to yourself and God. 
So good. So how can we cultivate a more open environment with our children? Like, I love your, the example of you and your mother because you became a sex therapist. So <laughs> <laughs> somehow, like, if there's parents listening that are just, like, you know, slapping their foreheads, being like, yeah. I just totally messed it up. Well, there's a couple things. Well, yeah, first of all, what I'd say about my mom is I think I knew I could tell that my mother liked sex. She did because I knew because when my dad would come up behind her and hug her, she didn't recoil from it. She mm-hmm. did. So I didn't know a lot about their sexual relationship, of course, but I knew, I knew that, that it was true that this was an idea that it could be a good thing. Mm-hmm. And so that's really important. So again, it's, it was never even stated to me like that. It's just that I knew it because I could map it, that my mother liked this part of her marriage. And that's a really big blessing. So you don't even have to go around telling your kids how great sex is. If you just live like you have, you've, you've figured that out, mm-hmm. that's a massive blessing to your children. So just you working out your relationship to sexuality, they are figuring that out. You working out, they are, they are using the scaffolding of your development for their own. Mm-hmm. You becoming more at peace with yourself, huge blessing to your kids because otherwise you infect them with the self-rejection that you have, for example. So self-development, even as a parent, is a big, big deal because you give your kids a huge leg up. The other thing I was going to say is that my mom, when I started going down this path, because I was trying to work out some of my own inner conflicts around it, and I was trying to make sense of, on the one hand, I have these friends who are quite repressed, who are getting married, who hate sex, but I don't like the the larger world view of sex either. I, I don't want that sexually liberal, non-committal reality either. And so I was trying to figure this out myself. And you know, I, I probably gave my mom some pause that I was going to study Mormon women and sexuality. I think she probably was like, wait, what? What about the forgiveness topic you were thinking of? But um, <laughs> um, but on the other hand, my mom said to me, I'm so grateful you're doing this. I respect it. I, I'm grateful you have been able to figure out something that I couldn't figure out ahead of you. So that is to say she was blessing. She was making it okay that I was figuring it out and that it was okay that she hadn't gotten it all figured out herself. Do you see what I mean? Like she's mm-hmm. my ongoing development rather than seeing it as a kind of judgment against her. And so that also gave me the freedom to keep sorting it on my own. Which speaks, I believe, to her sense of her personal sense of self. Yeah. That absolutely. she didn't make that about her. Exactly. Exactly. Which I'm really grateful for. She's been happy for her children to thrive and even surpass her. And that's a lot of people don't want that. They're afraid of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. I've got a couple questions from my listeners. Maybe we'll skip through as many as we can in the next 10 minutes. Is that okay? Sure. Sure. How can I awaken more desire in myself? Well, what I would say is that duty will kill it. And authenticity and creativity and generativity will create it. So when you're in the I'm in reaction to the world, it will tend to go down, at least something organic and soul, soul sustaining. Now, some people have sex as a way to kind of cover over their anxiety. Some people have sex as a way to kind of extract validation from another person. And that's not healthy desire. In my courses, I make a distinction between unhealthy desire and healthy desire. But healthy desire is coming out of a genuine, self-expressive, creative aspect of ourselves. It's it's the godly instinct within us, actually. 
it's this ability to create and do and to make a difference in the world. And so one of the quotes that I give in my, one of my courses is it comes from um, the Gnostic gospels and it's the gospel according to Thomas. These were scripts that were found in 1945 in Egypt and so on. And Thomas is quoting Christ as saying, and I, I don't remember this precisely right now, but basically, oh, if, if you're true to what lies within you, what lies within you will save you. And if you deny what lies within you, what lies within you will destroy you. Wow. So that is to say, when you don't take your talents and develop them, and I don't mean you have to have a career or any specific version of how that goes. Mm-hmm. But if you don't take what's in you and create with it and develop it and turn it into something within yourself, it will undermine your happiness. And so a lot of times when people are asking me the desire question, they've really got it down to how do I produce some desire at night so I can manage my husband and get him off my back? Okay. And I'm not going to be able to help you with that <laughs> because I, I, I don't, I mean, unless you're going to check out, I don't know how else you do it. Right. So if you, but if it's going to be something organic within you, it's about figuring out how to thrive and be more deeply alive within your life, within your own mind and within your marriage. And that means honoring your gifts more, honoring your development more, making room for your desires to even emerge because so many of us are so quick to reference what other people want that there isn't even any room to know what we want. And we're so good at it. They've suppressed it for so long. Absolutely. And so when people say, I don't even know, I'm like, I believe you, okay, because Mm -hmm. you are so accustomed to pushing it down. But that doesn't mean that it's not there. And I think what I would look at first is where my resentments are because the resentments are often signals like I want something here that I'm not owning that I want. And so maybe I need to go and get curious about what is the thing that I want, but I'm afraid to claim that I want. And, you know, again, when I do these workshops, our desire workshops, I'm talking to the women in the group and they're, they're often talking about I'm afraid to expose what I want. Maybe it's the wrong thing. Maybe it will ask too much of other people. Maybe it will, maybe Maybe it's, you know, going to fall apart and I'll fail. And there's this inherent exposure in letting yourself desire. But it's a very, very important process if you're going to grow into the woman you need to be for yourself and for others. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I think it's scary for so many too, because they, that's a risk that like others won't support them, right? That they have to stand stand on their own two feet. And I think maybe someone listening to this answer would have been like, can't you just like give me a few tips and tricks? But what I think is so beautiful is that it like, it's the longer way, but it's the more fulfilling way as well. And I will give you one quick tip, I suppose, is you can think about a couple of things like what are, I I keep referencing my courses. I feel like I'm like, (laughs) no, please do. They're so good. Everybody go buy her courses. They're excellent. Yeah, the women's sexuality, I'm helping women to look at what are the positive sexual experiences I've had, and, and I'm helping people to look at what are the meanings that are, are important to my sexuality? What are the meanings that consistently make me want it? Because you want to go and recreate those meanings. You want to have those meanings work within the relationship. You want them more alive in your life. Can and you give us an example of what you mean by meanings? Sure. So some, for example, um, a meaning that I really like is the idea of being chosen and desired for me. Like that it's that I'm known deeply and that I'm wanted and that 
you know, um, that I'm wa- that I'm wanted above any other choice. You know, there's kind of an idea out there that men are non-discriminating in their sexuality. They just mm-hmm. want to get off, so to speak, and so crass. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's sort of how we often think. And so a lot of women have a meaning, I'm not alone in this, that that when I know that you want to be with me, not just have sex, you want to be with me. And for me, the meaning I like is you'll you'll break rules, you'll break conventions, <laughs> because I'm that compelling. Okay. And that's something that a lot of women like is this idea that I'm highly desirable. And that's partly because that's how we're raised to think about our sexuality, but also it's it's part of a kind of feminine energy, I think, in some sense. So then I know, like, I like that meaning frame. And so when there's reminders that my husband really knows and loves me, values me, is aware of my life and what I'm going through, it, it isn't just about sex. It's about, I know Jennifer. I want to be mm-hmm. with Jennifer. That's always a meaning frame that matters to me and is is erotic for me. That is to say, it makes me desire sex. Or, you know, I talk about fantasy, you know, creating meanings or stories or narratives that you can share with your spouse or create with them that reinforce this, right? So, you know, I won't share any right now. <laughs> but, no, you know, <laughs> right. But, but, that, yeah, but the, that's very playing, tangible. That's right. And so you're playing with a particular meaning you know that you like. I'm selected. I'm chosen. I'm desired. I'm wanted, right? So, yeah. Excellent. Where okay, so as you know, the the women who listen to this podcast are mostly conservative, yep. Latter Day Saint women, and they they want to know more about female orgasms and yes. where and like where they can go, and they're all yes. just okay, terrified well, of the internet. Get, okay, well, you have to take my course then, <laughs> because I'm speaking specifically to Latter Day Saint women, and I'm teaching you about your vulva and orgasm and women's orgasm and women's sexuality is amazing. It really is. Women have, and a lot of people don't believe me until they start to, to experience it, but women have more sexual capacity than men do. They have more. And this capacity. is your Art of Desire course, correct? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So they have more capacity for they have the ability to have multiple orgasms, but they also can have much deeper, richer orgasmic experiences than men are generally capable of. And the reason why women often look defective is that women are much choosier about where they let themselves show up and whether they can validate their sexuality enough to let it show up. But I teach women all about women's sexuality. And when we're so busy referencing men's sexuality, we look defective because we are slower to become aroused and slower to reach orgasm. But that's not about defectiveness, it's about difference. Mm -hmm. And if you keep the frame in the first 10 minutes, well, it looks like men are champs and women are defective. Right. So we need a more expansive understanding of what women's sexuality is and men's sexuality and how you create a meaningful, powerful bridge between those two ways of being. Love it. So good. Okay, we're going to go with one more question. How do I begin to talk to my spouse about sex if I've never really had an open conversation? Well, you you got to get yourself educated first, I think, a bit. You've got to start having some of your own, just as we've been talking about, you need to develop more of a self around the topic. You've got to figure out more, what do I think? What do I see? What do I see as my role in our troubles? What do I think is my spouse's role? And what is my position? Even though it's not like your last position or something, but what, do, what is my mind around this? 
and then to dare to share your mind with your spouse. Even if it's looking at, I think we've done this kind of badly, you and me, and you've had a role and I've had a role, but it's, it's not about how do I get him to be okay with me talking about it, but how do I solidify my own position enough to dare to let it be knowable? And whether he's okay with it or not. Exactly. And that's really the, that's the muscle. A lot of times we talk about communication exercises as how do you get your spouse to be okay with whatever you're saying? That's not the right muscle. That's prescribing the problem actually in the name of a solution rather than how do you get more solid in what you think? That doesn't mean it's your last view or your la- because you may see and understand some of the things your spouse says in response and say, yeah, yeah, I think he has a point. I think I am not seeing this part of me or my participation or I'm seeing him more deeply when he starts talking and that's developing my position more. But it's a, it's about daring to let yourself be knowable. We talk all the time about we want intimacy, but most of us are terrified of intimacy. We don't want to really be known. We want to be validated and told that we're enough as we are. To be knowable is scary. You know, I'm willing to show you my flawed self because there's no other way to be human and tolerate you seeing it and knowing it and not running for cover. Why is it so much better to be known than to be validated? Well, if you're, if you're going to demand validation, you never will grow because you, you basically will extract, you, you, you have to live dishonestly to demand validation because none of us can be validated all the time, can we? I mean, like no. we're all flawed. We're all, we're all people in development. So if you're like, you must feel good about me at all times is a command to be dishonest with me and lie to me. And then if you get somebody that's always propping up your sense of self, you don't trust them anyway. You know, I had a client whose mother would shut herself in her room for multiple days. And then the father would say, okay, when mom comes out, tell her she's a good mother. And so then the kids would all line up and say, you're a great mother, you're a great mother, because that's what she wanted. And then she'd say, you're liars. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's psychologically abusive, clearly, but it's also this idea that I want you to show me that I'm that, but then I distrust you anyway. I know you're all being dishonest with me. And so- mm-hmm intimacy is I'm willing to deal with what's true, even if it hurts. You know, like one client was complaining that his wife never desired him. And I said, you know, he's like, I've tried everything, this and this and this. And I said, have you ever asked her why she doesn't desire you? And he said, "Um, no. (laughs) Okay. So you think that's a pretty basic place to start if you're trying to solve it. But Mm -hmm. see, his trouble was he couldn't tolerate the invalidation of seeing himself through her eyes. And so he didn't want to know it. So he'd rather have my wife is broken and I've tried to fix her in 17 different ways. That's the frame he wants because that's a more validating frame of himself. He's the strong one. He's the good one. And she's just can't get her act together Mm -hmm. rather than wait, why don't you want me? What does it show you about me? Or maybe what does it show you about some part of herself that he doesn't want to look at? That's possible too. But very likely it's about, he doesn't want to see himself. And so you know, it's hard to see ourselves. I mean, I'm all very vulnerable. Oh, it's just, and, and it pushes us towards growth and destabilizing a view of ourselves that we have. And, you know, we, we like the, often the view of ourselves that we've got stabilized inside, but it's often not congruent with reality. (laughs) So, so it's a discomfort. (laughs) It's a really uncomfortable process to be like, Oh gee, you know, I'm, I'm not as nice or as stable or as, you know, like when my son's making fun of me showing off. Like, I don't want to think of myself as somebody who shows off, but apparently 
I am. <laughs> so, so, and he's showing me. And so then do you deal with it or not? Yeah. And again, that's where the growth happens, right? That's where exactly. we become more godlike when we're willing that's to right. put ourselves that's in those positions. But in the short term, it's like, can't you just give me a pill that I can take yeah. or whatever that <laughs> yeah. I can give other people so they always well, think a certain way about me? Exactly. And that's why I talk about all the time the idea that marriage is a divine institution because it pressures our development. It's you have a messenger right there show I mean imperfectly of course but showing you where your flaws are if you'll let that be knowable to yourself it can be a, the drive wheel of your development oh I love that and I love that question that you that you ask them to ask themselves like where am I part of this problem yes. that's a very honest question yes. and can I answer it without beating the crap out of myself about exactly. it because that becomes indulgent too and that's also a yes thought. I mean, so, you know, and good, we're good at being ungodly, but, you know, we can, but that's also to go into like, I just suck. Everything about me is horrible. And it's a tempting position in part because it also gets us out of having to grow up and take responsibility. Yeah. Cause if there's just something way. flawed about me, then I can just stay this way. I'm broken. Yeah, and I can just feel bad about like, I'm just such a horrible, horrible person, but never have to deal with oneself. Yes. Oh, this has been so good. Thank you so yeah. much for my being pleasure. here. Will you tell my listeners one more time where they can find your online courses and your retreats? Sure. sure. Uh, so just my website, which is my name, finlayson-fife.com. And then on the website, you'll see a link for online courses, which has all the four courses there, workshops and retreats. We're doing a retreat, a three-day retreat in Oregon for the Art of Desire course. And that's more than half of it has sold, but there's still spots and also one in Alberta, Canada. And so the live workshops are really great. Um, and, and then we'll do a couples retreat in the fall in Jackson Hole. Awesome. Thank yeah. you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in our show notes below to learn more about where you can find Dr. Finlayson Fife's website, her online courses, information about her upcoming events, information about her free Facebook group, and more. Thank you for being here.